It was 60 years ago this week that Reverend Virgil Zerbel planted Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church. That year in 1962, America had the highest church attendance ever, before or since. It was going up until 1962, and it's been going down ever since. Zerbel's 25-year leadership is the stuff of legends, but it all started with an entrepreneurial spirit that prompted him to take a bag of dimes and a phone book to stand at a payphone, to work his way page by page down the list, calling and inviting everybody into life in God's family. And if he hadn't done so, we might not be here. For the past few weeks, we've been thinking together about what it means to, to be the church, what it means to be on mission together. We've been asking the question, what exactly are we doing here? Why did we crawl out of a warm bed, take a hot shower, and then venture out into the cold to join together with a bunch of other people who did the same, who left their warm homes and Sunday papers to be here now? Now, it's a common question, not only in our congregation, but around our community and across our country. You've heard, I'm sure, of the great resignation. So many people are leaving the workforce right now. There's also another thing happening in churches. Maybe we could call it the great reset. Church is not what it was two years ago. It's not what it was 60 years ago. So after all the challenges we've been through, amidst all the difficulty and the division, what does it mean to be on mission together? What does it mean to embody that same entrepreneurial spirit of Reverend Virgil Zerbel, standing at a payphone with a bag of dimes, inviting everybody to life in God's family? I want to conclude our series with a prayer that Jesus once prayed. We often read about Jesus going away to pray, don't we? Jesus goes away to pray in solitude all by himself early in the morning, sometimes late at night till early in the morning. We read about Jesus constantly going away to pray, but rarely do we read the content of those prayers. What we just prayed a moment ago, we call the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the disciples' prayer, isn't it? It's how Jesus teaches us to pray. But in John chapter 17, we listen in on Jesus' prayer. Shakespeare fans may remember uh, a scene in Hamlet. If that's not you, if you're not a Shakespeare fan, try remembering sophomore English. Hamlet is filled with action, right? But at one point, the action stops. Hamlet is looking for a way to take revenge on his stepfather, Claudius, for violently usurping the throne of Denmark. And Hamlet finds Claudius kneeling in prayer in his chamber, praying quietly. And so Hamlet has a difficult decision. If he takes revenge on Claudius now, during prayer, Claudius may have repented of his sins during that prayer, and so then he would be saved. And so Hamlet waits. Because you never quite know what somebody is praying for, right? In John 17, however, we get to listen in and we get to hear ever so clearly a prayer of Jesus. John tells us this. Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, the Greek word for glorify there is doxadzo. Let me hear you say doxadzo. Doxadzo. Yeah, it sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? It's where we get the word for doxology, right? We just participated in a doxadzo. In John's gospel, though, this word used 
for glorify has another sort of connotation. It means to honor or to praise, but also, whenever John uses it, there's another dimension to glorify. There's another dimension to doxadzo. It also means to sacrifice, to give of one's self. Let me give you an example, just one from John chapter 12. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's the same word. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be doxadzoed. And then he explains what that means. Very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life for this world will keep it for eternal life. And so Jesus prays, Doxadzo, glorify your son in his service, in his sacrifice, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Which, when most of us think about eternal life, that's not what we think about, is it? If I went around and, and asked... Uh, in our congregation or even out in our community, what do you think of when you hear the phrase eternal life? Most of the time we imagine being somewhere else, up there, right? Out there with all the things we love and keep us happy or at least some angels playing with harps on clouds, right? When we think of eternal life, that's what we think about. There's a television show called The Good Place where Ted Danson plays an angel who only allows good people in. But at its outset, the central character is allowed in by accident. There is no way she should be let into the good place. Spoiler alert, it turns out there is no mistake. What she thought was the good place is actually the bad place, and she is right where she's supposed to be. <laughs> now, when we think about eternity that way, it prompts a question, doesn't it? The question it prompts is, why doesn't, let, why doesn't God let more people in to the good place? But Jesus sees eternity differently. Look at John 17, verse 3. Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that we know God, that we know Jesus whom the Father has sent. The Greek word implies not only a quantity of time, but also a quality of experience. Now this is eternal life. We need not wait for that one glad day. No, as Dallas Willard once put it, eternity is now in session. So Jesus prays for himself in the mere moments before his sacrifice, like a kernel of wheat falling to the ground. Then he turns his attention to his very first followers. He prays for them. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Next slide. He continues in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one, which again is sometimes different than how we operate. We like to think that to be with Jesus, we need to get out of the world and into our holy huddles with only those who believe the same way as us. But that's not Jesus' heart. He wants us in the world, just not of the world. Think about what we've seen this week in the news. We have seen this in action in a very tangible way. 
leader of a nation that is under attack, who is given a ticket out of danger, and instead of taking that ticket to freedom with his family, he remains in the midst of danger, in the midst of a fearful situation. Instead of being taken out of that place, he chooses to stay. Jesus continues. I think we're a couple slides behind. Next one. He says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is not that Christians all of a sudden get beamed up and away, or they're in holy huddles away from the challenges of the world, but instead that they would be protected from evil. They are not of the world, Jesus prays, even I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For, I, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So, Jesus starts by praying for himself, that as he is glorified, that he would truly glorify God in his service and in his sacrifice. Then he prays for his earliest disciples, that though remaining in the world, they would not be of the world. And then Jesus prays for an even wider group. He continues, My prayer is not for these earliest disciples alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Which was a really important idea in the first century. Jews and Greeks and Romans all believed in the unity of humanity. And there were efforts made to embody this unity. That was the main goal of Alexander the Great. And later, the main goal of the Roman army. Unity was to be found through military conquest. It's like an old Peanuts cartoon I once saw, where Lucy walks into the room and she demands that Linus change the channel on TV, threatening him if he didn't. Anybody ever have conversations like that? Oh, just my household. Okay, good. <laughs> Linus asks, what makes you think you can walk in here and take over? These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> what channel do you want, asks Linus. And then turning away, he looks at his fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> In the same way, we too strive for unity. We hear about it all the time. In our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, in our relationships. We too strive for unity here in our family of faith. But the unity Jesus prays for in his church is not something we achieve by our own strength, by merely getting organized like that. See, Jesus' unity is something very different. Jesus' unity flows out of two things, according to John 17. It flows out of God's gifts and out of God's glory. Both God's gifts and God's glory bring unity. Thirteen times we read of God's gifts in just this one prayer of Jesus. In John 17, 13 different times, Jesus mentions God as the source of all good gifts. God gives us to Jesus, he says. 
then Jesus gives us eternal life. Jesus gives us the truth of God's word. And Jesus gives us God's glory. Unity flows out of two things. God's gifts and God's glory. And when Jesus gives us God's glory, it's that same word again. Doxadzo. See, Jesus lavishes us with honor and with praise. And Jesus also calls us to service and to sacrifice. Like that kernel of wheat. Because eternity is now in session. Christian unity flows out of that honor and praise God lavishes on us, that Jesus lavishes on us. It's not some vague sense of unity for unity's sake. Instead, it mirrors the divine community of the Trinity. Jesus prays that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. The picture of Jesus, excuse me, the picture of unity that Jesus prays for is not getting organized like that, but rather it's an invitation to mirror the perfect divine community at the center of the universe. The creative, life-giving, sustaining force found in Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's the unity Jesus wants for this church. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer compared this God-inspired and God-led unity to the tuning of pianos. He puts it this way. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. And so 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious, turn their eyes away from God, and strive for a closer fellowship. What would it mean for us to be unified like that? Not only unified under scripture, not only unified by theology, but unified in mission. That every day we knew we had one job. One job. To invite all people to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family. What if every Sunday morning when we gathered together in worship, when we tuned into the stream on Sunday morning, we would give thanks to God. As we looked up to him, we would give thanks that he has gathered us into this community. That we have been welcomed into his family. That every week that we would lean into discipleship with one another and we would beckon one another deeper into that walk with Jesus. And that every week, every one of us would lead out in mission, planting the good news of the gospel, watering the seeds that have already been planted, that God might bring growth. See, Jesus prays for himself and then his immediate disciples. And then Jesus prays for everyone that would become a disciple through his disciples. Think about that ragtag group Jesus left behind, those 12 disciples who carried on his mission. See, Jesus was praying for us, the millions of Christians around the world today, and the countless others throughout the centuries. In a way, the Gospel of John is a little bit like Hamlet. It's filled with all kinds of action, with teachings and miracles and healings, 
But at this point, in John 17, the action stops. The action stops. And we listen to the prayer of the true king, the high king of heaven, not Claudius, who usurped the throne in Copenhagen, but Jesus, the high king of heaven, who gave up his throne to be sent in order to serve, to be sacrificed in order to save. Not to clasp his hands together in a fist, but to fold them together in prayer and to reach out to bring healing and wholeness to a world that is hurting and in need of hope. We may not be here if Virgil Zerbel hadn't stood with that bag of dimes in that phone booth 60 years ago. But don't miss it, friends. Our story started even earlier than that. Our story started all the way back in John 17, where we listen in on Jesus' prayer for himself, for his disciples, and then even for us. For all those who would hear his call and who would come to him. See, in that moment, Jesus is praying for all those names, even those ones that Virgil was calling as he worked his way through that phone book. And the question before us this morning is this. Will we too be on mission like Virgil Zerbel was on mission? See, each of us has a bag of dimes and a phone book. Each of us has been gifted by God and given glory from God. But is it only a glory of honor and praise? Is it only gifts that we get to enjoy? Or is it gifts that we share? It is, a, is it a glory that includes sacrifice and service? Where we too are sent to serve that God might save. If you're at all like me, um, you wish you could go back in time sometimes. Some of us may feel like we'd like to go back in time 60 years. Or at least we'd like to go back in time two years. Anybody with me on that? But we do not have Marty McFly's DeLorean, do we? And we need not look through the rearview mirror, but instead to look through the windshield. Because, friends, the mission field is right in front of us. And it is ripe for the harvest. Jesus tells us that there's a mission field in front of us that's ripe for the harvest, and the only challenge is whether there are workers that are willing to go out into the fields. The mission field is ripe for the harvest, so let's not only look 60 years into the past, let's look 60 years into the future. You see, Jesus prayed for us in John 17, and he continues to intercede for us, even now for our unity, not that we might get organized like that, but that we might get organized like this. We might get organized like this. Until this week, whenever I thought about Jesus interceding for the saints at the right hand of God, I always thought that he was like interceding for me, and I'm, and I'm kind of serious here. I almost thought he was interceding for us to like have a good day. <laughs> like, like Jesus was interceding for Curtis, that he might you know, get a good night's sleep. And a, and a healthy breakfast. And, and that Jesus is interceding for us that like things would go well for us. But if Jesus is interceding for us anywhere near like he was interceding in John chapter 17, his intercession is different, isn't it? We can listen to the, the prayers that we pray and the prayers that other people pray and we can really see what matters most to us through our prayers, can't we? 
Jesus said whenever we speak, it's like an overflow of our hearts. What we care for the most just seems to bubble out. And so we pray for, for health, and, and that's, that's good and important. And we, we pray for success, and that's good and, and important. But what does Jesus pray for? Jesus prays that we would see that God is the source of all good gifts. And that he has lavished us with so many gifts. And that God is the source of glory. Not just a glory that brings us honor and praise, but a glory that causes us to serve and to be sent and to sacrifice ourselves that others might be saved. If Jesus is interceding for us now, perhaps he's interceding for us in the same way that he did in John 17. Not just praying that we'd have a good day and that things would go our way, but that we would be a church in unity on mission. On mission to a hurting world in need of healing, in need of wholeness, in need of hope. Next week, you're going to see a new symbol here in our sanctuary. We like to do a number of different things in our church. We've got the communion table here, a reminder, as we take communion every week. That stays. And we've got the baptismal font over here. And we leave that there every week to remind us that we are baptized and that we are in God's family. But next week, you're going to see a brand new symbol. You're going to see a big stand, and you're going to see a candle on top of that stand. And that candle might be lit, or it might not be lit. And the reason it will be lit is if before next Sunday, any of us here in person or streaming online, engages a conversation of someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, and we have a spiritual conversation pointing them to the good news of the gospel, when you come in next week, that candle will be lit. And if we go out this week and we don't have the opportunity to engage in mission in that way, that candle will not be lit. And so every week we'll come in, every week we'll start streaming, and every week we're going to be reminded by that symbol. Be reminded of what it means for us to be on mission together. What it means for us to be unified, not like this, but like this, and like this. Inviting all people to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family. You know, the reason that Virgil Zerbel was so effective 60 years ago in planting Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church is that Virgil Zerbel did not plant a church. Virgil Zerbel planted the gospel. And there's a reason that that church plants are so effective even now in reaching people who don't yet know Jesus and helping them come to know Jesus, meeting them in the midst of their hurts to bring healing and wholeness and hope. The reason church plants are so effective in doing that is that they are focused on one thing, on the good news of the gospel. May we be so focused as well that everything we do would be to invite all people to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family. Father in heaven, we long to go back to an earlier time, to a simpler time, to a time when the world didn't seem so wild and crazy as it is now. Father, we long to go back to simpler days, and yet your mission is in front of us, not behind us. Help us to see that your mission, that your harvest, the fields are ripe. And so would you send out your workers into your fields? Would we hear the prayer of Jesus, not that we be taken out of the world, but that we be in it? that you would protect us in it, 
that we might share the good news in it. We give you thanks for the ministry and the mission of this church over the past 60 years, for the ways it has blessed us. It has been a tremendous gift and has brought incredible glory. But Father, may it be a glory that is not only about honor and praise. May it be a glory that's about service and about sacrifice. May it be a glory that sends us to bring salvation. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. For the sake of his inbreaking kingdom. Amen.